All right, so uh, just a reminder, we're in the midst of studying and discussing the incredible claim of Scripture that to all of us who are authentically born again, we have the invitation and the opportunity to walk in God's divine nature. And what a wonderful new lens that is to understanding the life that we're called to and the walk that we're called to as sheep of his pasture. What the God of the Bible has always wanted going back to the very beginning was a people of his own who would share in his nature. And whereas in the first covenant that was not possible because the law in and of itself was not capable of transforming the, the human spirit, the human flesh, the fallen human heart, what's available in the new covenant are better promises that do make that very thing possible. So he promises to all who are his authentically born again and regenerated into a brand new creation. He promises a new heart and a new spirit. And by those promises, we have everything we need to walk in what the Bible calls his divine nature. Beautiful, remarkable, incredible, impossible. And if that's what's going through your mind as you wrap your head around that then you're on the right track it is beautiful and remarkable and impossible so I praise God for this revelation and for continuing to get to study it together right now we're in 2nd Peter chapter 1 and um if you remember, the, the culmination of these first 11 verses not only talks about the divine nature being available, us being given the invitation, the invitation to partake in that divine nature, that it's only uh, possible because of the sp uh, specific precious promises given to those who are authentically born again. Uh, but then to those promises and to the faith that is given to all who believe, there are specific things that we must add, and these are very much uh, on us. These are our responsibility. This is our part of the covenant. This is our walk. Uh, as every one of the apostles describe it, really in the same terms and with the same urgency, uh, that we have a very important role to play in, as it relates to partaking in the divine nature. So let's, let's read these quick and... Um, Today we're going to be talking specifically about godliness, which is fifth down on the list. Uh, but let's but let's get the context one more time because we we've been off for a couple of weeks um, where we find this list. So someone wouldn't mind reading for us, Second Peter chapter one verses one through eleven. Go ahead, Michael. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. 
grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and mercy, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us. Beautiful. God, give us ears to hear truth from your word. Keep going, Michael. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your, your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So you notice there, um, just a reminder that the things that we are to add to faith, our uh, pieces of this, of this covenant and of this equation, the things to which we're to be diligent about working on, they are... Having them is the different. Having them or not having them is the difference between being fruitful and effective versus being blind and even forgetting you've been saved. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a very stark difference based on what, how we act, how we respond, what we add or fail to add. So there's a ton at stake here, quite frankly and, and very specifically holding on to the truth of our salvation. That's a big, big deal. Based on what? How we walk. Go ahead and finish that out, Michael. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Amen. For so an, excuse me, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, so the walking out of these additions is the key to our stability as believers. And that's, a, that's an awesome promise that is available and at our, at our fingertips. Stability in our faith, stability in our belief, Stability in our convictions, stability in our assurances. If there's, a, if there's ever a question in our hearts, saints, of, uh, of whether or not we're authentically born again, of whether or not we belong to him, if there's ever a question, we just got the answer why. It's not God's side of the equation ever. It's always only our walk. All right, and here's, a, and here's just an honest moment of transparency. 
for me, even having a weekend of indulgence, and I say that very G-rated, <laughs> like I'm just talking about a whole weekend where my family says, Eric, wherever you want to go out to eat, you're, it's your birthday weekend, you get to choose. Whatever movie you want to watch, Eric, it's your birthday weekend, you get to choose. So I'm not talking about going on a bender. I'm just talking about a weekend where I was sort of like the focus. Even that, to me, caused some confusion. I'm just going to be totally honest. Like, I came out of that weekend, don't get me wrong, super grateful, blessed, and grateful, but also slightly aware that that's not how I'm called to live. And that's not the focus of my life, meaning me. And that was a, 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 an important lesson for me as we come back to this text. Did it make me stumble? No, but did it cause moments of slightly being off balance? I can say yes. So, so, so I just remind us all, if, if there's ever doubts about salvation, doubts about our election, doubts about whether we have his word written on our hearts and his spirit inside of us. If you have had certainty and conviction, and then you have moments where that certainty or conviction is gone, it's because of your walk. That's what this text is teaching me. Okay, so let's get this thing nailed down. Let's get the, let's get the clarity so that we can have application. Right? So the, so the list starts with virtuous living. What have we learned about virtuous living? What is virtuous living? Moral excellence. moral excellence. It's living a moral life. Okay, where that can get confusing in today's day and age is who gets to define morality? Who gets to define excellence as a man and excellence as a woman? We go to one source. One. And it ain't a sermon. And it isn't a podcast. And it isn't a Christian author, right? There is one source that is certain, and that is the Word of God. Are we all crystal clear on that? You don't go off what I say, by the way, what I share. If what I share happens to align with the Word of God, then you can go off of it. If it is off by one degree, then you ignore what I say and you go back to the Word. And I pray that God continues and always to put a guard on my mouth that only what I speak is his word and teach is his word. So this virtuous living, he's giving us so many lenses from which to understand it. It's, um, one of them is um, obviously walking in the divine nature. Having moments as the scriptures uh, teach where we are perfect, not perfect meaning equal to God, but perfect meaning in perfect alignment with him, perfectly in tune with him, his heart, his purpose, his will, his ways in that moment. That's what virtuous living looks like. It's practicing living now the way in which we will live forever. And why is that? Because in the age to come, there is no sin. 
There is no recklessness or lawlessness. There is no stubbornness. There is no disobedience. There is no idolatry in the age to come. So as we begin to shed off and prune all of those things that we will not be taking with us into the age to come, the appetites, the habits, <laughs> the whatever, I can't even get it off my screen. Uh, that's God preparing us for the age to come. Think about it. If um, to the lawless person whose primary source of happiness or pleasure in this age are things that offend God or are contrary to his word, contrary to his ways, and will absolutely never, ever be carried out in the age to come, for that person to say a prayer, right? Repeat after a pastor and say a prayer and believe that they're born again and then continue to chase after those pleasures, right? Do you honestly think that they're born again? Do we honestly think that they are covered by the blood, belong to him, and that, and that their behavior doesn't matter anymore? Absolutely not. Right? One of the greatest evidences that we are authentically born again is, is, is conformity to the image of Christ. It's sanctification by the word. It's a continual transformation of our life Losing all of the things that will never be taken into the age to come and gaining all of the things that will be added. So it's, it is sanctification into the image of Christ. All of these are, are lenses through which we can understand virtuous living. Christ lived the perfect, excellent moral life. He is the model. He is the example and how did he walk according to the laws of God? Perfectly. So once again, we can dispel with the nonsense that in the new covenant, the laws of God do not matter. If that were the case, then in the new covenant, the most excellent life would be something other than how Christ lived. Mm -hmm. And that would never be the case. He walked in all of God's ways perfectly, and that was manliness according to the Bible. Um, walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. All of these are great lenses from which we can understand virtuous living. Now, the second on the list is exactly to Diane's point. Adding knowledge to virtuous living is really just knowing what the Bible calls right and wrong. It is why we meditate on the word day and night. Because it's perfect instruction for conviction, correction, training in all righteousness. It's why we have the word of God written all over our house. It's why we teach it to our wives, husbands. It's why we teach it to our kids. It's why we come together on Sabbath and Study his word. That's why we gather on Tuesday nights. It is not enough, saints, to say, uh, I'm going to add virtuous living because the Bible tells me so. It's not enough to be in agreement with that. 
we have to know specifically what virtuous living is based on his word. So I was looking for the list. I thought I had it in here. Take that list. Here it is. And this is not a complete list. But take that list and learn it. And read it. And know it. And memorize it. That's not immature. That's not legalism. That's not working out and earning our salvation. That is meditating on his word. To add knowledge, the knowledge of what his word says is right living. All clear there? Okay. To once we agree to living virtuously and add the knowledge to it, then we add self-control, which is what? I know it's super complicated. <laughs> What'd you say, Lizzie? Gosh, you literally, did you copy my notes? Here, here's what I want to say about self-control, guys. Um, the fact that we add self-control to the knowledge of how to live virtuously means that virtuous living is 100% up to each of us as an individual. 100% up to us. And, and I make that point right now because there is a ton going on around us, maybe more than ever, at least in our lifetime, a ton going on around us that we are not in control of. It's easy to feel out of control right now because of all the nonsense. But, but, what I'm, but what I'm supposed to share with all of us today, I believe, is that as it relates to living morally, you are 100% in control of that. Meaning that there is absolutely no victims in this room if living morally has not happened yet. And I say that because we live in a culture of victims. We live in a culture of excuse-making. We live in a culture of blaming others. And it often happens when I have counseling sessions or, or people that are struggling, and they're struggling because of how they're living. Bless you. Right? Because we all reap what we sow, period, without exception. Whenever we sit down, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of excuses. Or it's questions that lead to blaming others. And it's rampant in the church. It's rampant in the body of Christ. And it's why the body of Christ is, in many cases, weak and immature. And so if there's any um, question whether or not you have some of this going on, um, let's just put it to bed that because the Bible calls us to add self-control, we need to know that we are in control. And we are never the victim. It doesn't matter who raised you. It doesn't matter who your spouse is. It doesn't matter what your workplace is like. 
It doesn't matter how bad other drivers might be. It doesn't matter how crazy your kids might get. You are, and I am, 100% in control of whether or not we live virtuously. Agree? If there is a feeling of judgment when you are being corrected, that is because you love your sin. As long as the correction is biblical, if biblical correction is met with a feeling of judgment, it means you still want to sin. And unfortunately, the church is really, really guilty of that. So I pray we continue to move towards being a congregation in which the word of God is the law. Correction is seen as love, right? And when we are shown that our lives contradict the virtuous life that we are called to, we don't see it as being judged and we don't get defensive, but we own it. Because truly where self-control matters is when you come to a, a point of decision where your life is not conforming to the virtuous life that we're called to, and you've got to decide what you're going to do there. Right? That's really where self-control matters. And we're talking about living a virtuous life, which is key to the stability of our faith, the stability of our salvation, and the stability of our life, period. Right, go back to why this list is here. Why are we giving it to us? So that we'll never stumble. So that we'll never question. So that we'll continue to be fruitful. Those are things that we all want, are they not? They're things that are super important to be the witnesses that we're called to be. So let's talk about where this list breaks down. It breaks down when at the point of decision where you got to assign, you're either going to align with the word or you're going to align with your feelings. What? You got to do what? Deny yourself. That's what Lizzie said, and to me, that is the absolute heart of real self-control. Real self-control is I deny myself, my appetites, my feelings, my past, my excuses, my whatever, and I just do what the Word says. And self-denial is not popular in the church. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Amen. Beautiful. There's an there's a old, old school saying that the, that the early church pastors, the, the ones that brought the word, used to, used to say, it used to be kind of a common phrase in the, in the church, and that was, um, uh, others may, you cannot. And that's just a really, really simple reminder of how we're called to walk. Others may indulge. You cannot. Others may gossip. You cannot. Others may lie. 
You cannot. Others may chase every passion they feel. We don't. We live by principle. And the, our primary principle is Jesus is Lord. And guess what, saints? The next thing we add to the list probably should give us an indication that the self-control that we're talking about is not going to be easy. Because what's next on the list? Why would perseverance be on that list if this was easy? Right? It's easy, it's easy to recognize and assume that or anticipate that that would come next. This is hard. Denying yourself is hard. Living virtuously is hard. Counting the cost, as Jesus said, and accepting the cost, as Jesus encouraged, is very hard. Because virtuous living will cause us to remove things from our life that this world loves. Living virtuously will, will, will cause the body of Christ to remove things from your life that your family loves or that your kids love. Aligning our life with the word of God will cause us to add things to our life that this world doesn't understand and may make fun of and may persecute you over. Right? Right? And that, and that might be the most clear indication that you are on the right track is if your walk and your pursuit of living this moral excellence is costing you something. If it's not costing you something, if it's not costing me something, I'm not on that walk. At the point of decision, self-control is, is not there and I am not making the hard choices. Right? Does, this, does the Holy Spirit make this choice for us, by the way? I don't believe so. What does the Holy Spirit do? Convicts. At that moment of decision. Our job is to, is to walk through that moment of decision in self-control, living by principle and not feelings, persevering unto obedience. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think you could substitute or put between self-control and perseverance testing. Yeah. That's the reason for the perseverance, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And why is that the case? Because a virtuous life is meant to be lived on display. A set-apart life will be put on display. Because this whole thing is about bringing God glory. This whole thing is about bringing God attention. This whole thing is about turning that attention off of our lives that are so set apart and so distinct and so starkly different than the world and just saying it's all because of him. It's only because of him. Right? So there has to be testing. There has to be trials. There has to be times in which we show that difference. In a church that, that conforms completely to the ways of this world is completely useless to God. 
the individual life that conforms completely to the ways of this world is completely useless to God, regardless of how many Facebook posts we make. Right? So if, so if we go into each uh, decision, these crossroads types of decisions, with a desire to appease the family or not make waves at work or not make any enemies or not offend we're always going to forsake God in those moments then. Do we try and offend? Absolutely not. Is this about making enemies? Of course not. But when it comes to a point of decision, and we're either going to do things God's way or we're going to do things the world's way, it doesn't matter. The players that are involved don't matter the body of Christ chooses God. And everything else will work out appropriately. And sometimes that will be division. Sometimes that will be conflict. It's okay. Just keep persevering. Yes, ma'am. How many would agree that the conflict or the cost or the loss at that key moment of decision was always in your mind way overplayed versus when you just walked it out and trusted God, the, the outcome was better than you expected? I can easily say that in my life. And it's led to this just desire to say, dude, stop fearing. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. Because it usually is. And the fear is usually way overplayed. Okay, so to uh, perseverance, we add godliness. And it was an interesting study for me on, on godliness because in a lot of ways, I, I was kind of having a hard time separating godliness with virtuous living. So um, I want to kind of go through this study today. We're just going to look specifically at this word and how this word is used in a number of areas um, be, because it's really cool. It's really cool what godliness really is, especially as it relates to a question that I asked two weeks ago that I had no idea was going to come back and be answered today. Um, but last week I asked, what's your why? Anyone remember what I asked that in regards to? It was, it was the, the virtuous living list and the study of the list in particular. And, and my question was, why, why do this? Why walk virtuously? Why spend the time to meditate on what it means? Why look up these phrases? Why learn what these phrases are? Why go through the effort to, to conform our lives to these things? What's your why? What's the motivation behind it? I asked that question a couple weeks ago, just kind of open-ended. And uh, lo and behold, God answered it today, at least for me. So I thought that was pretty cool. Let's look at this word specifically. So um, if you look up, Godliness 
from uh, the list itself, um, the same translation uh, for godliness in the list comes up above when it says we're given all things for life and godliness, uh, both times in, bless you, both times in, in um, 2 Peter 1. But the, the Greek word is euspia, E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A, and uh, the Strong's word is 2152. And euspia is the, the closest um, English translated word, and, and sometimes there'll, there'll be three words that, are, that seem to be sort of interchangeable in this particular use. But piety is, is uh, number one, and devotion is number two. So um, piety, um, in this case, specifically to God and or the gospel. And what piety means is devotion, goodness, or righteous, de devout, good, or righteous, or devotion, goodness, or righteousness. All right, so I'm going to just write down. Piety first. Now, um, to, to look sort of more holistically at the word, the euspia, the Greek word, uh, in the Old Testament is used four times, always with reference to someone who is holy or righteous or godly because they are committed to, to living their lives in conformity to God's will. I think three of those were in the Psalms and one was in Malachi. And then in the New Testament, it's used 15 times. The predominant sense of godliness or piety in the New Testament always denotes deep devotion to God, but still characterized or expressed by a life of conformity to his will and to his ways. And so um, in my mind, I was having trouble because I always went to the end result. And the end result of godliness in every case, in every example, is a life of conformity to his will and to his ways, which is why I was having kind of some trouble saying, well, what's the difference between godliness and virtuous living? Ultimately, it's about living a life that's pleasing to God, living a life in alignment to his word and to his ways. But that's really um, only the outflow of godliness. The outflow of godliness is a desire to conform to God's ways and walk in his commandments. But the actual meaning or the, the root or the heart of the word is piety, which actually is devotion. So does that sort of make a, dif sort of make a difference in your mind? Um, two... So 15 times um, the, word, the actual word euspia is, is used, but then there are um, two other forms of that word, and they're usually, it's still euspia, but it has a little different ending. It's like euspias or euspia, um, O-U-S, euspios. Um, but they're, they're, um, one is found in the New Testament twice, another is found four times. But both are consistent in a sense that they, are, they express reverence or devotion to God and or to authority that is ultimately expressed by living appropriately. So the same word could actually be used 
for how um, a, ch- a child should see their parents, right? So that's where godliness sort of makes less sense and piety or, um, or devotion makes more sense or reverence makes more sense. So because of Lacey's reverence for me as her dad, she's going to obey what I ask her to do. Does that sort of make sense? So, so, um, so the Lord was kind of walking me through this to help me understand that ultimately what godliness is, um, is providing for us is the answer to this. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Because, we, because purely out of obedience. Yes. Yep. Whereas the godliness, the motivation behind it is different because of the level of authority and respect that we have for God. Yes. Yep. Exactly right. Which is what? What are the two promises we're given? I'm flying by the seat of my pants here, but I, I feel like this is in alignment. What are the two promises we're given? All, all who are authentically born again are promised what? New heart and a new spirit. What's, always, what's the new heart always represent in the scriptures? The law, right? The law of God's written on our heart. What's the spirit always represent? The, the, the movement to align with God. Right, so if so, if to Kirby's point, if if one is sort of the black and white, this is how it's done, and the second is sort of this is why it's done, or this is God's will in it, then then I see that then I see that represented in both of these things, this being the law or the heart, this being the spirit or the why. Right, and ultimately, this devotion, this piety, or this devotion, or this love is for God and for his purposes, right? So, so if we do the, do the backwards work, basically it's saying because of our piety for God. What is piety? I know that's a real weird word. Piety is devotion. Devotion based on reverence. Devotion based on fear, the right kind of fear. Devotion based on love. Devotion based on trust, Right? All of the things that know the God, all of the things that we who know the God of the Bible all have. Right? If you know the God of the Bible, you have fear of him. If you know the God of the Bible, you have reverence for him. If you know the God of the Bible, you have love for him. If you know the God of the Bible, you have devotion for him. So the outflow of that piety is going to be virtuous living, which requires all these things in between. So to me, again, the godliness is really the answer to the question, why? Why do, we, why do we engage in virtuous living? Because we love God. Why do we seek a moral, excellent life? Because we're devoted to God. Why do we conform our life to his word and his ways? Because we have reverence for God. Godliness is the why, and the why is based specifically on devotion. Everyone tracking with me? 
Let's look at a bunch of, of text to, to, to point this out. All right, so first one we're going to look at is Acts. And, and here's the truth, guys. <laughs> this is kind of funny, but I promise it was not intentional. I promise this was not intentional. In fact, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to say anything other than this. There is a very interesting theme in several of these passages that I did not desire to make a statement about. I did not desire to, and I have no agenda to make a statement about it, but there is something specific in these texts that I believe the Lord just needs us to hear. I'll just leave it at that. Okay, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, someone please read for us verses 1 through 8. Acts chapter 10, 1 through 8. So in this short text, the word is used twice. And this is one of the, one of the cases in which eusbia was um, one of the um, derivatives of the word with the different endings. So the word is translated in our text devout, but it's the same root, same meaning, same everything. So in this case, um, the word is used to describe actually two people. Who were they? Cornelius and... A sir, the, the soldier, right? Or the servant? What was it? Sir. Oh, yeah, he's both. <laughs> Servants and a devout soldier. All right, so, so um, all these texts are going to give us clarity on godliness, right? We do not want to confuse godliness with virtuous living. Very easy to confuse those two because we go to the end. The outflow of godliness is virtuous living, but godliness precedes that, right? And it precedes it specifically in piety or devotion. So, so Cornelius is described as a devout man, and, and, and how does it, and how was his devotion illustrated? Alms and prayer. Alms and prayer, mm -hmm. right? The, the outflow of devotion to God is always the walk. The outflow of devotion to God is always action. But the action is not specifically godliness. It's the devotion that's godliness, right? Specifically be, uh, in this illustration because the soldier was described with the same word. We don't know whether this soldier was um, belonged to the God of the Bible or knew the God of the Bible, but, but we know he was devoted, 
See, so you can use this word, like I said, between parent, uh, kids and their parents because it's not specifically, beca or because it is specifically about devotion. All right, everyone get that example? Next. 22, Acts 22, verses 12 through 17. Every man named Ananias, as godly a man as you could find for obeying the law and well thought of by all the Jews in Damascus, came to me, and standing beside me, said, Brother Paul, receive your sight. And that very hour I could see him. Then he told me, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the Messiah and hear him speak. You are to take his message everywhere, telling what you have seen and heard. And now, light away, go and be baptized and, and be cleansed from your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. One day after my return to Jerusalem, while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw a vision of God saying to me, Hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't believe you when you give them my message. So, so Ananias is described as a devout man according to the law. That's the same word there. Same translation. We're just looking at the word in context, in the text, to help us understand godliness. Wherever we see godliness, we don't specifically first think the walk. We think about devotion. We think about loyalty. We think about reverence. We think about love. We think about why. Devotion or godliness is about why. Okay, now we'll go to some teachings. First Timothy. Chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7, if someone finds that. And I pray once again for ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying and for sanctification by the word. So this is a, um, an action for all who desire to live a life of godliness and reverence, right? Godliness is not specifically first about action, it's about devotion. So piety, devotion, reverence can all really be lumped in the same. If you desire to live in piety to God, in devotion to God, there is an action that we are called to partake in. And what is that action? Hmm? 
Say it like you mean it. Prayer. Prayer for who? In particular, who is who is listed in this list? Okay, if you if you have devotion to God, listen to me, saints. If you have piety towards God, which is devotion to God, which is love for God, which is reverence for God, he calls you to pray for all who are in authority. Everyone hear me? What's that? Can we pray for him to get wrecked, though? Hey, there, there's, there, there's only the command to pray and intercede. There is only the command to pray and intercede. Okay. I don't care, and I'm not going to, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I have no desire to make political statements. I have no desire to make political statements. As far as I'm concerned, all you guys need to know about me is my only political affiliation is the kingdom of heaven. And my only uh, leader is Christ the Lord. Okay, to everyone else, to everyone else, all I'm supposed to do is pray. That's the only, and, that, and this was not part of the teaching. This was just interesting to me that it came up today. In the, in, the, in the text that says, if you are godly and reverent, if you are devout to God, you pray. You can add to that whatever you see fit. But if you don't do this, you're being disobedient. Okay, next, 2 Timothy 4. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 4. Okay, what is that text not doing? There's lots of awesome little side teachings today, by the way. What is that text not doing? What is that text often used for that is incorrect? You can eat anything you want. As long as you pray for something, you can eat anything you want. Right? This, this text is used for that specifically all the time. As long as you pray for something, you can eat anything you want. Is that correct? Why do we know that that is not correct? He doesn't, he does not consider everything food. Right? For that to be correct, God would literally have to break his own law. Right? Okay, so let's just unpack this real quickly. I just feel like we can do this real quick. What? No, wait, hold on a second. Let's, let's hit, hit this real quick. So he's talking about apostasy. What is apostasy? Falling away from the truth. Okay, the truth is what? The word of God. Right? Apostasy is falling away from the word of God, falling away from the truth. He's talking about apostasy. And he says, in the time when lying has happened, they're going to teach you to not eat specific things. Right? 
But what you need to know is that you can eat anything that you are thankful for and that is sanctified by the word. Right? It's very easy to twist that teaching into saying, see, for a Christian to say you can't eat pork, that's, that's lying, that's hypocrisy, that's wrong. Everything God made is good, and you can eat anything you want as long as you pray for it. This is how this teaching always goes. Right? Let me, let me tell you why that is not what this says. Okay, first of all, when it says um, commanding them to abstain from foods to Seth's point, God has clearly dictated what is food and what is not food. Yeah. Right? This is, the, this is the heart of the dietary commandments. God created some things to be food and some things to not be food. Amen. Right? So if he is talking about things that... Uh, commanding to abstain from foods, there he is talking about things specifically that God said is okay to eat. Yeah. Right? So if God says something is okay to eat and someone comes to you and says, hey, you shouldn't eat that, that's the lie that they're talking about. And guess what? That was happening all the time back then. Specifically with what? Food sacrifice to idols. Right? Other certain specific foods that just religion and traditions of man were beginning to teach Christians shouldn't eat. But it had nothing to do with God's dietary laws. Wow. Everyone hearing me? Super important. We've got to rightly divide the word. We haven't even gotten to the godliness part here. This is all bonus teaching. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, it says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Verse 5 for it is sanctified. Now, what does sanctified mean? Set apart. For something to be set apart means there's got to be something else, right? And guess what? The something else is all the stuff that God said is not food, and that is not what this passage is referring to. The fact that it even says that some food is sanctified and some food isn't clearly says that God has instructed us on what's food and what's not. This is a different hypocrisy, a different false teaching, and it's often used to come against the true teaching that God has instructions on what we should and should not eat. Everyone clear on that? Yeah. Okay? Now you may continue. Verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constant, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine, which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. What is godliness? Devotion to God. Piety, piety towards God. Love for God. Exercise yourself in love for God. Exercise yourself in devotion for God. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all Remember, godliness in that sense is not how you live. Godliness is your devotion. Devotion for God is what? Profitable in all things. Why? Because when you are devoted to God, you start doing things correctly. Right? And all this is going to come full circle. Because you can, you can work hard right here. Listen to me, saints. You can work real hard right here. If you don't have this in place, you're going to become a hypocrite. 
and your homework is going to really point that out to you. Piety or godliness is devotion to God. Godliness is love for God. Godliness is piety towards God. Godliness is fear of God. Godliness is reverence towards God. That is expressed in obedience and always will be. But every time we read about godliness in the text, we need to understand this is speaking about devotion. I I don't know why I got to hammer this point home, but it's super important. Godliness is about devotion, guys. It's the why. It's not the what. Godliness is the why. And the why is devotion. Go ahead. The godliness profitable for all things present both promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Amen. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Okay, so now let's look at a, a negative. Uh, Titus 2, we're going to look at the flip side, ungodliness, Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness. Okay, so we're about to hear what ungodliness is. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity. And purify us himself, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Okay, so ungodliness, if godliness is piety or devotion or reverence, we need to understand ungodliness to be not those things. I don't know about you, but for me, whenever I think ungodliness, I automatically think lawlessness. But it is not specifically lawlessness. It leads to lawlessness. Why? Because it's lack of devotion to God. It's lack of reverence for God. It's lack of fear of God. It's lack of piety towards God. It's all about why. Okay, next one, last one, 2 Peter 2. We'll go back to this same text that we're working in. 2 Peter 2. And someone please read uh, 1 through 11. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Okay, what are we talking about here? Godliness. What is godliness? Devotion to God. What would be one of the greatest attacks to come against our devotion to God? Denying the Lord Jesus. Right? This isn't about behavior. Godliness is not about behavior. What, what we do in this category dictates our behavior. 
because this category is about devotion. This category is about reverence. This category is about commitment. Okay, so there are going to be doctrines and, and false teachers and false prophets that are going to come and deny the Lord. Is this happening in our day? And what does it sound like? There's lots of ways to heaven. Right? All paths lead to heaven. All paths lead to God. All religions work. These are all small ways of this heresy and this, and this false teaching coming against our devotion. Our devotion to what? The one true living God who says what? I am the one and only way. Right? The minute we say there's more than one way, we're no longer talking about this God. Godliness is about devotion. Devotion, you got to have the truth. Right? So it's going to become against. And, and this is the outflow of it. Go ahead, Michael. And this is what is going to happen because of it. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, <clears throat> and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the who are the ungodly? Not those not devoted to God. That, that is not a commentary on how they lived. That is a commentary on their devotion. And the judgment came on those who were ungodly. In other words, not devoted to God. Now you're about to hear how they lived. And, and I make this point because a lot of the ways in which they lived are now celebrated. And this is exactly how the God of the Bible has come against, all right, or changed, or tweaked, or softened, or watered down, or made more appealing. It's not the God of the Bible. How the Bi God of the Bible responds to this is very clear and about to be read. Go ahead, Michael. In turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them Anyone else feel that torment today? Then the Lord knows then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. What does godly mean here? Those devoted to him. Those who fear him. Those who revere him. Those who hallow him. This is about the why, not specifically the what. Go ahead, Michael. And the Lord knows how to 
to deserve the unjust and the punishment for the day of judgment, and especially to and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous. Okay, and there's exactly what ungodly means. Ungodly is not specifically the walk. The walk will be seen, and the walk is the fruit. But ungodly are specifically those who are what? Unclean and despise authority. Those are presumptuous and self-willed. Right? They have no devotion to God. They're devoted to self. Go ahead and finish that, Michael. Read that last sentence one more time. Whereas angels... Uh, I'm sorry. Read um, read 10 and 11, please. Okay. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority, they, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil or dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might Amen. So that's about seven of the 14 uses of godliness in the New Testament. The distinction of clarity that is the whole purpose for today, I believe, is that godliness is not just a repetition of virtuous living. Easy, easy to confuse it for that. Easy to lump them in the same category. But that is not what godliness is. Godliness is piety. Godliness is devotion. Godliness is reverence and fear and commitment and ultimately love. So godliness is the correct heart and the correct why and the correct motivation. Whatever we are devoted to dictates how we walk. Always. Always. Whatever we are devoted to dictates how we live. And so I want to I want to repeat a, a a quote that I read on Tuesday. I just think it's so right on the money, and I just read it this past week, so or two weeks ago. So I think it was divinely given, and it's a it's a Paul Washer quote. He says this: "A life marked by simple and heartfelt obedience to God's commandments." may be the most obvious and certain proof of true repentance or being authentically born again. A person may boast of an inward passion for God and feelings of piety or devotion, but such claims are only valid to the degree that his life conforms 
to the commandments of Scripture. So what is Paul saying there? And by the way, I would never quote someone unless they were, unless they were basically paraphrasing Scripture. Right, so what, what, what is, let me paraphrase what Paul Washer is paraphrasing. The truest sign that you are authentically born again is devotion to God. And your devotion to God, regardless of how much you claim is there, your love for God, regardless of how much you claim is there, your, your reverence for God, regardless of how much you claim is there, it's only real to the extent that your life conforms to the commandments of Scripture. And why is that? Because that is the Scripture from beginning to end, over and over and over and over and over. If you love the God of the Bible, you keep his commandments. If you have piety towards the God of the Bible, you walk in his ways. If you are devoted to the God of the Bible, you align your whole household with his statutes. Right? Is, is, is he summarizing scripture? A hundred percent. That is not Paul Washer's opinion. That is Paul Washer paraphrasing the Bible from cover to cover. But don't take my word for it. We're just going to look at a handful of scriptures because this is super important. First one's Joshua 2. 22.5, Lacey, you're going to read that one. Angie, you're going to read Ecclesiastes 12.13. 12, uh, 12, Nick B., Gospel of John 14, verse 15. And Steve, 1 John, 1 John 5.3. Okay, Paul Washer says that your, your claims of piety towards God, which is his way of saying your claims of loving God are only valid to the extent that your life aligns with the commands of Scripture. And I want to confirm for all of us that what he is saying is scriptural and biblical. Because ultimately what he's saying is, if you love God, you keep his commandments. If you truly love God, if you are truly devoted to God, if you truly are adding godliness, adding devotion to God, the outflow of that will be this virtuous walk. All right? I think that theme runs the entirety of scripture. So let's look. Who's got the first one? Lace? Just, this is Joshua 22, verse 5. But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. What was the very first thing we're commanded to do? Love. Love. The only way to love the God of the Bible is to walk in his ways. That's what Paul Washer said. And the only reality of any claim to be devoted to the God of the Bible is the expression of his commandments in our life, the application of his commandments in our life, the walking out of this virtuous life, the list that we captured, 
the meditating on it, the learning on it, the memorizing it, the applying it, the extent to which we will do that will be a direct outflow of our godliness. Our godliness is our devotion, our love, our love for the God of the Bible. Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived, summarized it for us. Go ahead, Angie. The conclusion of the whole matter. Here's the whole matter. What matter? What's life about? What's the point? What's the purpose? What's the why? What is the why of all of it? What are we supposed to do? What's the whole matter? And he says what? Fear God and keep his commandments. For that, this is man's all. That's it. Super, super complicated. Right, how we can possibly grasp this without a theological degree, I'll never know. <laughs> the whole matter, according to the wisest man that ever lived, is to fear God and keep his commandments. Be devoted to the God of the Bible as expressed through obedience. Would that likely be the same words that Jesus would say? Would Jesus' instruction to us be different? Would he change that? Would he tweak that? Would he adjust that? Would he make it something different? No, oh, what did Jesus say, Nick? If you love me, keep my commands. I know it's super complicated. <laughs> trying to make this as hard as possible on you guys. Last one, Steve, first John five. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I know it's I know it's complicated. I'm going to go straight to the last page of the Bible. This is literally the very last page of the Bible. Verse, it, it, Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they, have the, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates of the city. The last page of the Bible. Not much after that. There's nothing after that that says, oh, the commandments are done away with. I looked. In that, in that three paragraphs or four paragraphs, there's nothing in there that says that's Old Covenant or that's Jewish or that's legalism or that's unimportant if you're born again or that's not for the New Testament church. It's the same story from cover to cover. And why do I hammer that point to conclude? Because this is about devotion. And to the extent that you love God, and to the extent that I love God, to the extent that you fear God, and to the extent that I fear God, and to the extent that you revere God, and the extent that I revere God, the devotion is walked out in obedience. That is the why behind the decision every day to live virtuously and morally excellent. Now, there's a big warning in Scripture. And the warning really, as God is showing me, is if we skip this step, if we neglect this step, or most importantly, if we do not have this step, if we don't have love for God, if we don't have fear of God and devotion to God and piety towards God, and we attempt to do this, we're going we're gonna to walk in a very specific form of hypocrisy that... Jesus had a big issue with. Okay, so your homework is Matthew 23. Everyone, please study Matthew 23 for next week. And we'll 
unpack that together. Father, we just uh, honor you as we conclude. We give you thanks and praise for your word. We give you thanks and praise for your spirit. For the beautiful thing that happens when they come together. We declare it as a gift and a treasure that we cherish. And I pray that each of us, for every word that was from you today, that each of us would receive it, that it would take root in our hearts and bear much fruit. We pray for understanding on how to exercise devotion, to grow in our devotion, to grow in our piety, to grow in our reverence. Pray that by your spirit you would teach us how to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you all. Um,